See if you can find a seat. I know it's it's going to be tough this morning. It's a real busy one. But uh, thank you for coming. Really appreciate that and look forward to what we're going to dig into this morning. Um, so let's go ahead and start in prayer and then we'll we'll jump right in. Lord, thank you for this opportunity um, to study your word and to think critically about how your word applies to our everyday lives, Lord. Help us to um, be discerning and wise as we consider what we see in secular culture and how we can make an impact for you, how we can uh, glorify and please and honor you in all these various spaces. Um, help us to be effective, Lord Jesus. Help us to be used mightily, Lord. So I pray that you would give us your Holy Spirit, the power of your your grace, Lord, to um, understand your word, to discern good things, and to retain these things, Lord, so that we might be um, useful, Lord, to uh, further your kingdom, God. Bless this time. Help us to have uh, minds and hearts that are engaged. Help us to be encouraged and to learn valuable insights, Lord. Thank you, Father. Amen. So last week we talked about how worldview is vitally important um, when considering those who counsel in terms of where the counselor is coming from, what their end goal is, what the tools that they're going to be using are, and how that's going to be effective, and what the end result is going to be for that. So if we've established that secular society is coming from a worldview that cannot support God, the secular psychology society that we're we're considering here, um, we need to establish how important that is. If that is vitally important, then what do we do with that, right? So uh, we'll do a little bit of review here. Um, so ultimately the goal is to, uh, bring about meaningful change and effective change that bears fruit. Um, and that's the crux of where we believe that biblical counseling is an effective medium for communicating that. So last week we began the question with, um, should the pastor and psychologist operate in different spaces? And we kind of evaluated this based on a couple of foundational verses. So the first verse here is Galatians 1, uh, Galatians 6, 1, Galatians 6, 1. Uh, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. And then finally, Romans fifteen fourteen, And concerning you, my brethren, I myself am con- also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and also able, able also to admonish one another. Um, <clears throat> so we discussed very briefly the integrationist perspective that says psychologists who happen to be Christians are best suited to helping people with their problems. And this perspective at, at uh, face value sounds perfectly reasonable. As Neuheiser described, there's plenty of, of potentially dividing issues where finding that middle ground is, is a, a, great, um, a great balance for believers. This is an area where he believes strongly that that middle ground is not an option for us. And we're dig- digging into that now. Uh, this is a quotation from someone who operates from the integrationist's worldview. And as uh, this is very revealing. Martin Capp says, Bible should not violate the principles on which the counselor normally operates. So what we see here is the worldview that he's operating under, that counseling, that his um, education, his experience, what he's been equipped with is ultimately where he is going to derive wisdom and discernment. And the Bible can be used to offset that, to balance it, to maybe to, to reinforce some of the points. But when the rubber meets the road, he's going to operate off of his education rather than what the Bible suggests. And so with that being said, um, we're going to dig into a little bit more of the um, finalized integrationist. We're going to talk about um, the synergistic perspective, and then we're going to look at all four perspectives at once. So let's go ahead and jump in here. Um, 
the Bible teaches that mixing ungodly things and godly things is very dangerous. Um, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses, beginning in verse 14, we're told, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership ha- have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, even as God said. And again, there is much in psychology that secular psychology, as it's taught in universities, that it's not like medicine. It is a worldview contrary to the scriptures that actually pushes people further away from God. Um, Sometimes I visit the Philippines, and in the Philippines it's interesting because before Roman Catholicism came, Catholicism came to the Philippines, they had um, pagan religions there. And it's interesting because in some cases, there's been an integration between the, the form of Christianity that came to the islands and some of the pagan statues, gods, goddesses. And they kind of blended it together. And, and this has happened in other parts of the world as well, with kind of a grotesque mix. And I think that's something of what people are doing trying to mix psychology and and scripture. Uh, A Christian author writes, uh, integration implies a merging of things that can't be merged. You can't merge that which is of God with that which is in rebellion against God. David Pallison writes, what Jesus becomes, and he's describing in psychology, is the one who meets your needs, heals your wounds, convinces you of how valuable you are. Friends, that's not what the Bible says Jesus is. <laughs> he He's not there for you. The, the Bible teaches that it's about God. It's not about you. Again, Robert Schuller writing says, I don't think anything has been done in the name of Christ and under the banner of Christianity that has proven more destructive to human personality and hence counterproductive to the evangelism enterprise than the often crude, uncouth and unchristian strategy of attempting to make people aware of their lost and sinful condition. That makes sense in psychology, but it's totally contrary to the scriptures. That God's law reveals our guilt. As Galatians, Paul says in Galatians that then it becomes a tutor to lead us to Christ to be justified by faith and we see that we are sinful and can't save ourselves. That's the most loving thing we can do. And yet, in writing Christianity Today, uh, Tim Stafford wrote how there are actually thousands of professionals who have staked their careers on Christian counseling by getting this kind of training. And many more pointed in that direction. And I think they're going to have some conflicts. And even the example I gave earlier, that if you're going to practice and be a licensed therapist in California, when the law starts saying you can't help a teenager who struggles with homosexuality to turn from that because it's not right practice according to the worldview of the professionals who run the the business, uh, it's going to be hard. Paulison writes, should professedly Christian psychotherapists be defined as freelance ministers of the word of Christ? Does their education and credentials equip them to engage in the cure of souls as designated experts? He would say no. Just knowing about psychology does not equip you to help people with the problems of the soul. 
there's a third Christian approach in the moving in the spectrum from all psychology, primarily psychology with some verses mixed in. And, and there's a third perspective that would say, well, since all truth is God's truth, that we should have the Bible as our primary resource, but add to that the best of psychology. And many years ago, Larry Crabb called this approach spoiling the Egyptians, just as the Israelites were able to get gold and silver and clothes from the Egyptians when they fled uh, after the Passover and the Exodus, that um, we can kind of take from psychology the good things, and somehow that will make us better at helping people. And this is better, isn't it? And, and they would say that they want to use the Bible to critically examine their, their psychological training, the findings of psychology. And people in this part of the spectrum, I think, make a real effort to use the Bible to not just follow blindly what psychology says. And I, I know of people who are licensed therapists and some would call themselves biblical counselors along with that, who who would really go against a lot of the tenets of psychology and they, they take their, their uh, you know, they, they bring their biblical worldview into how they practice. Uh, however, I think there's some also some downsides. As I, as I read some of the people who claim to take this approach, oftentimes their psychological training still seems to dominate their perspective and in, in what they teach. And some of them actually, it's kind of like, it's interesting, like there'll be something in psychology that'll be like the silver bullet that this author, that author, be it boundaries. Uh, you know, they're, they're building their system around a psychological model. I know in, in one of Larry Crabb's early works, he took Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which is taught even in business school of, you know, how people work and how first people need to have their physical needs taken care of and then they need security that I guess not only they're alive today, but they'll be alive tomorrow. Then they need love and then purpose. And then the ultimate is self-actualization. And in one of his books, he tried to show how the Bible addresses all those needs. And uh, to some degree that you know, God certainly is our security. He meets our needs physically. It's through him we have love and purpose. That thing on the top of the pyramid is kind of hard to square with Scripture, though, the self-actualization thing. Um, and, the, and the problem is that model would never be derived from Scripture. If you're saying, well, what's the chief end of man? If you're reading the Bible, you wouldn't say the best thing that ever happened to a human being is to be self-actualized. No, the chief end of man is to glorify God. Again, love God, love others. And, and so it's better, but it's still flawed. And I think the problem is that if you've spent 10 years of your life studying this, hundreds of hours of practice being supervised, and you've gone through the whole process, your big book will tend to be your psychological training, and, and the Bible becomes the smaller book. Uh, and again, you read the books of those who claim to be in this perspective, and, and you can just read through it the how these concepts have kind of infiltrated, and I think, weaken, if not poison, what they're saying. Uh, one Christian author says, quote, low self-esteem is Satan's deadliest weapon. And I don't think he even tried to have a verse for that. Uh, Gary Collins writes, love, hope, compassion, forgiving, caring, kindness, confrontation, and a host of other concepts 
are shared by theologians and psychologists. Now, that sounds on the surface right because we use those words. But for a Christian, my concept of what each of those words means is entirely different than a secular psychologist. For me, this is love that God sent his son into the world. And my hope is a hope that is ultimately found in Christ and in eternity. And, and forgiveness is something I do as God is in for me. So yeah, the words are similar, but the concepts are very, very different. Um, you know, Crabb wrote a book called Inside Out. And at first it sounds like a good idea that, okay, well, that means we need to deal with the inner person and that deals with the outer person. That, that does seem to be biblical. But then as you read more carefully, it's really presenting somewhat of a Freudian view of human personality and subconscious as opposed to the simplicity of a biblical view. As David Pallison writes, a wrong theory distorts everything. Uh, Richard Gans writes, most Christian psychologists receive an entirely secular training and are ignorant of the scriptures. They seldom question the underlying worldview of the field in which they were trained. Instead, they take an essentially secular approach and sprinkle a few Christian insights on top. The result, secular insights that sound pious, but are dangerous and misleading. And and Jay Adams points out that that which was spoiled, that which was taken from the Egyptians, was silver and gold and garments, not ideas and beliefs. And actually, the Bible taught the Israelites, God revealed to the Israelites, watch out for the worldview of the cultures by which you find yourself surrounded. In Leviticus 18, in verse 3, through Moses, God says, You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes and live in accord with them. And in that statement is, I think, kind of a a statement to the Israelites of the sufficiency of Scripture, the Scripture they had. That he says, don't live according to the way that things were done in Egypt, where you've come from, or Canaan, where you're going. When they left Egypt, they were explicitly told to leave those ideas behind. And actually, what did they do with that gold, by the way? Well, they made it into a calf, didn't they? (laughs) And and they they took the gold, but they followed the ideas of Egypt, a false idolatrous view of God, and said, this is the Lord who delivered you. Uh, Now, is there some truth in Egyptian religion? Might there have been some truth in the Egyptian laws? I imagine that they probably had laws against stealing and killing. Well, why not add those to the law of Moses? Because the law the people of God needed was already in the law of Moses. There might be statements you would find in a textbook of psychology, and you might say, well, you know, that sounds okay. But how do you know it's okay? Because it's already in the Bible. Uh, You know, serving, they might say, it's nice to be nice to others. It's nice to serve other people. Well, yeah, that sounds kind of right. But even then, for us, we do what we do in loving others, for example, because we're in covenant with God who has first loved us. So even then there's a difference. So I don't, we don't need psychology in our pulpits, and I don't think we need 
to be training people extensively in psychology in our Bible colleges. I'm going to get to the end where it might be useful to touch upon psychology. I'll tell you now (laughs) that if you're living in Utah, it'd be good to know something about Mormonism, not because you want to take the insights of Mormonism and add it to how you help people, but because you know their worldview. And so I think it's good for Christians, especially want to counsel others, to understand what psychology says, because your people who are coming to see you are thoroughly psychologized. And you want to be able to understand what they're saying when they say, I'm on this and I'm on that, or I've been diagnosed with, you know, I'm bipolar, I'm doing cognitive therapy, in that way. And as, as part of our training, we want to touch upon that so that you know where to go to understand those things. But we don't turn there for the purpose of finding truth by which to help people, as we're going to get in the next section to what we think is the biblical methodology for helping people, which is relying upon the scriptures. God has given us enough in the word. What we need is experts in the Bible uh, to help people with their spiritual problems. In in Colossians chapter 2, we're told, in Christ are hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Do you want to be wise? Do you want to have knowledge, including the knowledge of how to help people with their spiritual problems? Look to Christ. That's where the treasures are. Why spend years of your life studying that which doesn't compare to Christ? And in verse 8 of Colossians 2, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception." according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. So, do you want to be complete? That's kind of the biblical answer to self-actualization, perhaps. How can I be complete? I'm complete in Christ. There are other philosophies that are deceptive. That which is accepted as the elementary principles of the world But we choose to know Christ instead, and he is the one who makes us pleasing to God by his grace and transforms us into his image, and that is ultimately what people need. Now, there's one other issue I want to address. I have a friend who has a PhD in psychology, and he has the idea that it would be good for Christians to go into psychology, get trained, be certified, be licensed, so that we can be kind of like, he said, like Daniel in Babylon. We can kind of infiltrate the Babylon of psychology, and he agrees there's lots bad in it. But to get trained in that, and then we can try to kind of bring in biblical perspectives. And and there's a lot of self-questioning in psychology where they're saying it's not working and the worldview doesn't work. and, And he has that idea. And as I thought about what he said, It is really true. There are some people in the biblical counseling movement whose initial training was in psychology, master's degree, even doctorates. And it may well be that they have a unique perspective not to practice psychology the way they were taught, but to have a voice among other people who are certified or trained in that way to point them to the sufficiency of Scripture in helping people. Although I point out to my friend that for him, and actually another friend I have, um, Daniel did not voluntarily go to Babylon. He found himself in Babylon, and there he chose to be an influence, and God helped him. And actually, part of my friend's story is is that he got his Ph.D. in psychology before he was 
converted. And I can see for him with that level of training that in those circles and maybe the doors that it opens for him that he's well positioned to have that kind of influence. And, and I trust as he is now spending his time studying and understanding the scriptures by which he can help people. Uh, I have another friend who also has a PhD in psychology and uh, I asked him, uh, what did you gain from your training that you think really helps you to help people? Because this guy, again, he's really committed to helping people with the scriptures, you know, with all that training. And he, he answered, answered and said, well, you know, not a lot. I think you would agree with what I've said that you learn a lot about people. And in you know, psychology, you'll learn how the brain functions and a lot of things and things about personality that are observation that can be helpful. But in terms of actually learning how to help people with their problems, he says, you know, not much. I said, well, what would you advise someone who's younger and, is, and really wants to help people? What would you advise them to do? And uh, it was interesting for coming from a guy who has a Ph.D. and probably somewhat fits into this third category of uh, moving to the fourth, I trust. He said, I would really encourage them to go someplace where they'd be trained in the scriptures. That that's what people need the most. And I think he would say that what he got in terms of the things that are useful to know, you, yeah, you can learn some of those things. But to spend years and years of your life and hundreds and hundreds of hours in an internship, um, supervised, that how much better that would be to spend that kind of time becoming an expert in the word of God, so you can help people with the book that God has revealed for the cure of souls. All right. Excellent. Excellent video. Something stood out to me so much at the very end there, you know, when he starts talking about uh, that specific example where an individual... Um, Let's say you have a hypothetical individual who is considering going through all the counseling so that they might be used in this specific space. Well, what did God do to address that need? Because there is clearly a need. Well, God drew a person who was already in that space to himself so that he might use his giftings and his knowledge to speak into that space, you know? So when in our feeble minds and we go, God has to use this way to do this thing, God can use any means, right? Um, but of course, that doesn't mean that in every context God will dissuade a person from pursuing this um, but anyway, I thought that was interesting. Was there anything that stood out to you guys uh, during the video? It's just that uh, adding on from last week, um, I guess I, you know, if you, if you would have asked me before this, what do I think of Christian psychologists, I would have thought, great, you know, they're Christians and they know psychology, but they can, I don't know, they can still stay strong on the word to what he's saying sounds like I need to look at that a little more uh, carefully and I, I am interested in like Larry Crabb and James Dobson and, and I don't know how much research I'll do but I would like to see where are they really coming from what is their background what, what would they go to more strongly which is there a side you know that kind of thing oh that's excellent those are things that we we definitely want to be considering in terms of um where people are following. I mean, it, to me, an interesting question as kind of a follow-up there, going, following down that further is, like he touched on, if we're, if we're studying something from a secular counseling perspective or we hear something that smacks of truth, that we go, oh, that is true, how do we know that it's true? What are your guys' thoughts on that? 
It's an easy one. <laughs> Go ahead, Andy. I know. Uh, God is the source of truth, and anything that that, that is true comes from Him. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, that's that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So why would we go to something that is removed from the truth that might have some crossroads that that might, uh, you know, by the indwelling grace and, and common grace of God, um, you know, give us some insight when we have the source of all truth. We have access to God. The veil has been torn. We can we can come before the throne of grace asking for wisdom and reading his word that is given to us so that we might know him, you know. Um, any other thoughts? Any questions uh, based off the video? Any anything um, that stood out to you before we move through my PowerPoint presentation, which I'm loosely aware of what to expect here? <laughs> All right, so let's look at the four fun, uh, foundational perspectives on counseling. So the first one is secular psychology. So effectively, human wisdom and experience and reasoning. Um, secondarily, we have integrationism, which starts to deviate a little bit. Primarily human wisdom and experience, supplemented with biblical principles, right? He talked about the idea of kind of peppering in verses to help it to be more uh, more applicable, uh, to particularly to Christian circles, right? And then you have synergism, which is primarily building your foundation in biblical principles, but supplementing it with human wisdom. And then we have biblical counseling, which is solely biblical principles, um, now, based on this list, um, what are some concerns that you might see with integrationism and synergism, um, given the two extremes there? What might be some problems that you could run into that he, he touched on, or, or even in your own experience from, uh, from hearing things from the counseling perspective, or... Where might that lead? Go ahead, Andy. What does uh, light have anything to do with darkness? You know, uh, and that's the passage he quoted from, uh, thou shalt not uh, unequally yoked. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? Eric? Uh, From what he was saying, it seems like maybe the best case scenario is that... um, you would you would find things that are in common, but it, in what he was saying is it's kind of a waste of time if you're finding the same things there that are already said um, in your in your ultimate um, authority, right? So, I mean, other than um, becoming familiar with it to relate to people or understand where they're coming from, you know, spending a huge amount of your life studying that which is already somewhere else is probably not the best use of your time. Absolutely, absolutely. That's an excellent point. What are the tendencies for people who start out? Because I think that it's totally legitimate to start out with the biblical worldview and desire to um, be as effective as possible by incorporating things from a secular counseling perspective. What's the possible um, outcome there? Or practically, what are, where do we see that leading? Any thoughts there? Well, he talked about the idea that oftentimes... Um, we are fallible men, and though we desire to remain completely in the in the the foundation of of the biblical worldview, we can easily start to 
build our foundation elsewhere. So either either, either we, we have a, an operative principle like boundaries that we hear in psychology, and, and we feel like that really strikes a chord, and so we start searching the gospel, you know, searching the word for ways to reinforce this concept of boundaries, right, where we're building our foundation on the world or word or on, on other things, or we legitimately have um, a foundation in the word, and as we're, in, we're talking with an individual, we start to also talk about things from a secular counseling worldview and try to improve try to improve our point try to make that point even stronger with counseling materials and ultimately that can only do one of two things what are the what are the possible outcomes that he talked about from um, from incorporating truth with secular counseling He talked about a couple of different possibilities, and he very quickly came through this. But, but what, are you, what are your thoughts as far as the individual receiving this? Um, what is it going to do to the message? Any thoughts on that? Well, he talked about two possible outcomes, right? The one outcome is that it weakens the message, Right, the one outcome is that you've made this foundational scriptural biblical war argument, and then you're pulling in statistical things, and you're talking about the value of boundaries, and all that can do is bring away the emphasis from the word. If you're if you're leaning on those secular counseling, you know, principles, right, or you're poisoning and you're undermining the truth with falsehood, right? So those are really the two outcomes, the two possibilities, right? Is you're going to weaken your view or you're going to weaken the outcome, you're going to weaken the message or you're going to poison the message. Um, So building off of those, we do see the biblical counseling method. If we're consistent with scripture and with our reformed roots and sola scriptura, as we hold to the tenets that we we believe that it is by by God's the Holy Spirit of power that we come to know God more fully and that that's the most important thing in our lives, um, that, is, that is how we're going to effectively communicate. Um, let's see here. When uh, Larry Crabb has talked about spoiling from the Egyptians, what was he getting at? Did, you, did that make sense to you guys? Was he giving the Egyptians all kinds of good stuff? They were getting a little spoiled, spoiled rotten. <laughs> The spoil uh, is uh, material, and uh, and you and you think that you can take that material and bring it uh, and 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 use it to to bring it to a spiritual uh, uh, platform. Uh, it's total fail, and so you end up building a, a, a cow to worship. He talks about um, taking the best that psychology has to offer, the Egyptians have to offer ideas and things like that. Um, part of the problem is most, or a lot of Christians, I won't say most, but a lot of Christians aren't prepared, especially in a counseling situation, to be able to evaluate the best uh, that comes from the world in terms of ideas. And so when someone talks about the importance of self-esteem, you it can sound biblical to a lot of Christians if they're not thinking it through all the way. And therefore, um, it's not like saying there is no God. Um, That's obvious that that's not true. But that seems to be the 
the difficulty of trying to take the best of the Egyptians is it's it's not the truth, but it's close enough to the truth that it can cause people a lot of um, confusion, um, and certainly it can be easily deceived into thinking that that's the right way, way and be led away from the truth. Absolutely. I mean, you know, let's say you're you're in a counseling context and you're 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 engaging with somebody, and 85% of the material that you're covering is from scripture, and you're building this case, and then you bring in self-esteem as a secular concept, and that's only it's only uh, 15% of it, right? But if that individual leans hard on the self-esteem topic, right? I love the conclusion that he brought in because you're they ended up worshiping that idol that became their what they were looking to for life so even if it's only a small percentage of what you're what you're you're giving the individual if that's what they lean on it's not going to lead them to christ ultimately so it's a dangerous place to be any other thoughts on that concept andy that brings me to think about um, modern day uh, apologetics um they try to con- convince people now that there is an intelligent design, and that makes me really tick. Uh, intelligent design. So, yeah, I think you know they they have re- they think they are really won the won the war if they can convince people to to to, to believe that there is intelligent design. So, in other words, that is some agnostic god. It is not the, not the god of the Bible, and even that that thing that kind of apologetics is being taught in a lot of churches and they spend a lot of time studying and even teaching their pastors on that. That's so true. I mean, I think in, in many contexts, I can relate to having a fear of the whole truth, right? Having a fear of communicating that because what that might do, there's some topics in Christianity that are a little bit, uh, I'm a little little hesitant to share, right? Because I don't know what how they're going to perceive this. I don't know how they're going to receive it. But if that leads us to compromising on the truth, that's not right. There's a time and a place to communicate things. It doesn't mean that the first time you're engaging with someone, you're going to talk to them about, uh, you know, total depravity. Well, the tool, I mean, I can go limited atonement, you know. Um, but those are things we can't be afraid to talk about. We ultimately have to lead to God. We can't, we can't um, think that, like Andy's saying, like, like something like intel- or intelligent design is the end result. No, we're going somewhere, and that somewhere is to the cross of Christ where we lay down our sins, recognize in repentance that we have a need of a Savior. So good. Any other thoughts? All right, let's see here. So let's turn to, if we can, um, a few different verses. So I'm going to have a few different people turn here. So if I could get four volunteers. Um, the first uh, section is going to be 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Can I get someone to, well, I guess let's get four people to raise their hands, and then I'll kind of give you what you're going to be turning to. we got Eric. That's one. Anyone else want to read? We need four volunteers here, Earl, <laughs> Teresa, and and Jim. All right, so Eric, let's have 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16. Um, Teresa, if you could read 1 Corinthians 3, 19. Uh, Earl, if you could read Colossians 2, verse 3. And then Jim, if you could read Colossians 2, uh, verses 8 through 10. Go ahead and uh, kick us off, Eric, whenever you're ready. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with uh, Belial? 
Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Hmm. That's good. Okay, Teresa. For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And this is going to be um, Colossians 2, verse 3. Go ahead, Earl. This is speaking of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Mm. And then, Jim, this is Colossians 2, 8 through 10. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophies and empty deceptions, according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head overall rule and authority. Hmm. That's so good. How can we say that we have become complete when we read that? What does it mean that we have been com- become complete? And in other places it talks about being fully equipped. How are we fully equipped? What does that mean in the context of counseling? When we as believers consider, I mean, in our, our initial verses here in um, Romans 15, you know, it says, um, concerning you, brethren, I'm a, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. What does that mean in the context of being able to admonish? Teresa. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. Any other thoughts? Absolutely. We're full and complete in Christ as we seek to um, seek to counsel. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. Now when we consider... Is there ever a place to um, study psychology? How might it be helpful and beneficial? In light of what we read, is it ever helpful? Is it ever relevant for us to understand psychology in any way? That's right. Daniel and then Andy. Um, I think if if you're biblically counseling, um, not that you have to learn psychology, but it, it could be good and helpful to know what you're combating. Um, or know your opponent. So um, that's not to say that you're really trying to go after somebody specifically or anything. Um, but if you know some of the basics of like oh, what they teach compared to what but the Bible says, that could be very helpful because if you have somebody come up to you and be like, hey, I heard this from my therapist, you know, is this right or whatever, and you have no idea what they're talking about. So, and that there's no, there's not saying that you can prepare for every uh, every eventuality or anything like that, but it could be helpful to know at least some of the basics. What came on the head with the, the etymology of the word psychology? Suke. That's all. And then uh, ask them, you know, how well equipped are you to deal with the soul? They, you know, probably they will come back when, with the definition from Freud. Uh, but then again, you know, that that is not... Uh, 
you know, that's not the, the biblical definition of, of soul. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that's great. That's extremely helpful. I mean, and I think something Andy touched on earlier, what you touched on, Daniel, in terms of knowing what they're talking about, what do we, what do we think about in terms of, of love, uh, commitment, faithfulness, particularly love? When you think about those terms, what might a psychologist be saying, leaning on, what might their implications and intentions be with those words over against what we see in Scripture as you think about some of those concepts? Um, I wish I had that on the video, but, but you know, particularly in light of love, what is, a, what is a psychologist trying to conjure up with those concepts versus what we see in Scripture? Any thoughts on that? Teresa? I don't know if this is right, but they might be more about things like feeling and self-affirmation and all that, whereas to love in the Bible is out of obedience to the Lord and action, and that might be very different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, so much of it ultimately is oriented around ourselves rather than others. Go ahead. But I was going to say that um, psychology would probably be more self or person-oriented, and scriptures are always God-oriented. Absolutely, absolutely. And to me, I think that's a huge key, where the psychologist is, in many ways, trying to get you to a place where your symptoms are not uh, impacting you, where you're comfortable, you're embracing yourself, you're accepting of yourself, you're at peace with yourself, right? But when we have the verse in uh, Galatians 3, um, let's go ahead and turn to Galatians 3, verse 24. And we come to understand what the intention that God had behind these feelings and emotions that we see in secular psychology trying to justify. Um, So we have Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. So we see that the law, in a very real sense, is communicating to us guilt. We feel guilt when we break God's law, right? And we we feel that, and we feel that there's something that's not right, that we need to be reconciled. We need to, to fix ourselves so that this doesn't happen, and we need to be reconciled to someone, to something. Somehow we feel that, and that's the grace and mercy of our God that gives us that, even as a, an unbeliever, that guilty conscience, right? Um, what a secular psychologist is going to say, we simply need to do away with that. We want you to be comfortable with the way that you feel right now. Um, so it's so important that we recognize that, that God intends that guilt to be a tutor. Um, the premise then becomes, should we merge God with a little rebellion to navigate issues with more wisdom, right? As we try to sprinkle in the secular concept of you being comfortable with yourself over against the core fundamental tenet of Christianity that says you are broken and desperately sinful and in need of a Savior. Let's go ahead and turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 14 through 18. All right, 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18. We touched on this a little bit earlier, but we're going to read through the whole section here. 
Now do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. I love this picture that the Lord calls us to come away. I mean, this is exactly the answer to what Larry Crabb was saying, and that we are to be a set-apart people holy unto God, and not to be intermingling our, our affections, right? Because either we'll serve one and, and hate the other, or we will love the one and um, despise the other. We need to be rightly dividing the word of truth as we seek to understand these things um, and seek to walk with God. In light of this, um, <laughs> my my I was expecting a little bit more a more more uh, engagement on some of those earlier points. Any other thoughts or questions at this point? I'm trying. <laughs> I know, right? Oh, yeah. So let's summarize both with our, our initial verses. So we have Galatians 6.1. Let me go back to that real quick. Galatians 6.1. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. So here we have the operative principle being you who are spiritual. And then we have Romans 15.14. And concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and also able to admonish one another. So given these principles here, what do we see as considerations for someone who should counsel in the context of the church, for example? Um, does that mean that everybody is in the church should be in situations to counsel. How do we start to navigate that? How do we start to establish those principles for... Do we take it blanketly? Andy? That's the principle of one being more spiritual, being uh, stronger, admonishing a one who is weaker in the faith. So you need to bear that in mind, uh, you know, whether you are qualified or not. At least... Uh, Look at, at your, your own level of faith, and uh, and also there's some some ad, admonition from uh, to to, uh, to Timothy also, you know, a workman who need not be ashamed. Uh, so so that that is also uh, to, uh, on a different topic than your question, but uh, um, you know we when we are faced with the expertise of all those guys who have a lot of degrees behind their names. Uh, we need not be ashamed to face them. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. So seeing a little, uh, you know, spiritual wisdom, spiritual um, depth being, it's important that you're in a better place in most cases. Is that is that an operative principle or is there ever a case where two people uh, in a similar spiritual place or maybe one person is a new Christian, can they counsel the other way? There's This does break down a few different ways. Any other thoughts? Anyone else want to jump in on that? 
I think there's many times that Teresa and I have sharpened each other and Peg and I have sharpened each other, Milan and I sharpen each other. I think there's very much the Barnabas and Paul, right? The situation where, I mean, I go to her for counseling. She comes to me and asks my opinion. Um, I definitely think that's a very strong thing. And just to tag on, I think eventually... I mean, everybody seems to be stronger than another person in their faith at some point in time. And so if we are following the Lord and and pouring in the scriptures into ourselves and, and um, as Teresa and I have been saying, getting prepared for those days where our children are going to have to be taken care of us. But, I mean, I think that all of us should eventually be, if not at, at any time in our spiritual lives, be ready to... Um, give counsel and wisdom and um, backed up by scripture. Absolutely. There's always going to be seasons and and particular areas in our lives where we're going to be the weaker brother, right? And we need someone else to come alongside us. So that's absolutely true. We are, iron is to sharpen iron. Um, but there is an element where you have to be in a, in a spiritual place to encourage the other person. And, and, you know, being a new convert, that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be equipped in every case to rely fully on the Scripture. So that's an important consideration, too. What, how much weight should we put on experience in terms of being qualified for counsel? What are your thoughts on that? Andy? The key is um, how did you solve your own experience? How did you solve it? Um, if you got it solved by following biblical principles and it worked, then, you know, it's, it, uh, it has value in your counseling. But if you solved it by other means, material means, uh, then, you know, you have to really kind of uh, wait, wait for a while and see uh, whether that's applicable uh, to the context of biblical counseling. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, is your track record representative of consistent biblical principles, or are there other variables? Hannah? I think, I don't know, I mean, I think there's a balance between, like, what Julie was saying and then, like, someone sitting down and regularly counseling people, too. Because if you're consistently counseling, then obviously you need accountability, you need maybe a little bit, like, to be consistent in more, even more specifically than just within the body one to another um i've you know sometimes like i'll try to help and encourage my friends but then i'm realizing that i need that for me too to remind me to be using the scripture when i encourage them so it's like it kind of i think kind of varies i mean it's all the same ultimately but like how do you i don't even know what i'm saying anymore but (laughs) if that made any sense no that's excellent we have eric and julie uh, it seems like the the Bible talks about uh, some wisdom coming with age too, and so there may be um, it may be a matter of discernment. But certain, uh, like if you if you have questions about your children or something like that, there may be a benefit um, not only in in having someone who's familiar with the word, but someone who has applied the word in a similar situation in their life, and you've seen the fruit of that. I think there is wisdom in. In, in that. Absolutely. No, that's so true. I was thinking that same thing, but I was also thinking, you know, I think there's been times where I've even gone to you for counsel 
that you aren't necessarily um, have the same life experience, obviously, that I have, but you may know the scriptures a little bit more and be able to tell me the scriptures and be able to counsel me even though he hasn't gone through the same life experience you know, and be able to say, well, this is what the scripture says, mom, you know, and so, um, and that's helpful. So I think there's like this tension that goes with it. So no, that's so good. Daniel. I think experience can be helpful if there's something somebody's going through and you know, the other, the, the person counseling you has gone through it too. Um, so it can be a comforting thing. Uh, but you, as a counselor, you can't prepare for every single, um, situation and you, there's no way you can go through every single situation. So while experience can be helpful, it's not it's not always needed. It would it, some people might might really want somebody who has gone through something, and they might get it, they might not. But um, I don't think it's completely necessary. I think scripture is ne- necessary. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Jeff. I've uh, been slowly becoming involved with a program called Hope for Addiction, and one of the questions that the founder of the program. Um, so she gets a lot because it, you're dealing a lot with uh, non-Christians to start with. Um, as you know, you've never been an alcoholic. How can you counsel me? And um, her answer to that would be, we're not offering uh, empathy. We're offering hope. And that hope comes through the scriptures. Um, and she said, actually, the real questions they should be answering is, with all the problems you've had in your life, how come you didn't become an alcoholic? You know, what kept you from that? Um, because even though she has not had that same issue, she's had issues in her life that led her closer to God and not into alcoholism. So experience is not, I mean, it's good to be empathetic, but that's not really what we're offering in our counseling is to be empathetic, but to offer them hope and truth. And, and we have that through Scripture. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, that's excellent. Nika? And even the verses that you said before were fully equipped. So uh, having experience isn't what's going to equip us. It's the word that's going to equip us. So though those things, like Daniel said, are helpful um, because it's helpful for our emotional feelings. It's not what we need in order to be equipped. So... I think in, oh, go ahead, Andy. Another thing is, uh, you know, as a counselor, we need to fully, fully rely on the uh, prodding of the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, uh, whether or not you come from that same experience, even though you might not have any experience in that field, you still qualify, you know. And, and, you know, people come come to me all the time, and I'm always be facing this problem is, if you're not married, how are you qualified to, to counsel somebody who has marital, marital problems? I say, you know, I, <laughs> I really fully rely on the Holy Spirit for that, because actually I'm not married, so, but, but you know, I don't feel at all uh, shorthanded. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. No, you're exactly right. I think in most cases we would see that practically being more of an issue on the receiving end than the giving end, right? It would, I think it's more common for people not to want to share or not to receive what is shared with them well unless they believe that they can trust the other person having walked through that with them, you know, in, in the same way. Um, we've, we all have experienced that where 
hearing something said from the right person makes all the difference in the world where, you know, um, I might have said something a million times and then Nika says it and it, it, it's effective for one of our children. I know we can all, we can all relate to that. So ultimately, I think what, what the issue is, is are, are we ready to hear truth, hear the gospel from a believer, from another brother. Um, we need to get ourselves in a position where we don't have the pride that says, um, what I have is unique to me and nobody else can relate to me. We need to be able to say, I need God and God is with you and he's with me and I'm, I want to hear him through you. And that's how we're able to receive the truth and for it to minister to our hearts. And in the context, you're, you're exactly right, Hannah. There's, there's, there's the type of counseling that we do on a daily basis as we disciple one another, which doesn't mean, again, that you're sitting down at a table one-on-one saying we're going to meet every week. It might mean purposely doing spiritual good for another. It might just be a breakfast every once in a while or a quick phone call where you're praying and encouraging that other person. We need to be ready for that. We need to develop a culture that is encouraging each other and that is ready to receive encouragement. I think the receiving is such an important factor or we need to be ready to hear God speak to them through our brothers and sisters. But we also want to be pursuing and encouraging a culture in our church that says, you might need something more formal. I might need, we all might need something more formal at times to be able to hear someone speaking to us. And um, I'm excited for what God's doing and is going to do at Coast through this series and, and as we think on these things. So um, let's go ahead and pray and ask the Lord to continue to keep this conversation, this heart, these thought processes going as we as we continue on this morning. Lord, I thank you. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, Lord, that you haven't left us to try to unravel this incomprehensible mess of of what life is, but you've given us your word that is clear, it is understandable, and it is profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for training in righteousness, Lord. Help us to cling to this and help us to trust that you are at work here in Coast through our brothers and sisters, Lord. Help this to be such an important part of our lives, to recognize that that. Wherever we are, we need the fellowship of brothers and sisters because that's how you've designed it. We're all members of one body here at Coast Community Church and abroad, Lord, as the the church at large, but particularly here. God, help us to have a care for one another. Help us to, to desire the very best that we not be settling for relationships that are not what they could be or what they should be or walks with the Lord that with you that are not what they should be or could be. Help us to um, desire to spur one another on to love and good deeds all the more, as long as it's still today, Lord. Give us grace. Continue to work here. I thank you for this time, for this conversation, and may it continue. May our our hearts be engaged with loving one another well. Lord, prepare us for um, the time of worship to come. May it be sweet and rich and full, and that we would have good fellowship as we look to you, as we encourage and do purposeful spiritual good for one another. Thank you, Lord. Amen.